Uh, the next month, I plan on going through some lessons that will challenge us as to what it takes for us to grow as a church. And I titled the lesson, Anything You Ask. And of course, I put a question mark on that also. And what is the goal of our faith? And so when I go through this, I have to, I have to be the hypocrite, I guess you say. You know, the, you know, the old guy that says, don't do as I do, do as I say. Well, I don't want to say that, but at the same time, I, I do know that I, you can look at my life and say, well, Mark is not always doing everything he's telling us to. And I feel like somebody who has discovered the truth, but I'm still in the process of embracing that truth. And with all the years of my life as a Christian, I still know that I fall so short of what I should be more often than I succeed. Uh, but at the same time, that's why this is my favorite Bible verse. If you know me, you know that to be true. What Simon said to Jesus, what Jesus said, you guys want to leave too? And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So no matter how my day is going, no matter what I feel like I've accomplished lately or failed at lately, there's really only one logical choice. There's only one choice for the heart. There's only one choice for the faith. And when I read the scripture, sometimes you run into the stories about people that mess up in the Bible, and we kind of take consol you know, we kind of like that, don't we? Consolation of that, you know. Well, I, don't know. I haven't done anything like David did. He was a man after God's own heart. We kind of like those stories. And maybe it should cause you to breathe a little bit easier, not because I say that I'm better than any of those Bible heroes, and I don't even want to compare myself to those Bible heroes, but what you see when you read those stories is God's love, God's grace, God's patience, and above all, God's continual, unrelenting desire to hold us close to him in spite of what we are. So when I have this title here for the lesson, it might seem a little deceiving at first when it says anything you ask. Because what I really think we need to explore this morning is what is the goal of the church? You know, and, and for us, we're trying to move a little f further. I think we've taken a few steps in the, you know, the, over the years and that little physical symbol being built over there is that's all it is, is a symbol. <clears throat> But it should cause us to stop one more time and reflect and say, what is the goal of the church? Why are we here? Why does the church matter? What is our purpose as the church of Christ, as the way? And if you just now walk through the doors for the first time of this church or any church, then maybe you don't know all the answers to that. But the rest of us, we have a lot of answers. We have a lot of pat answers. Well, I could ask that, open it up to the crowd, and people say, well, our job is to spread the word. Our job is to save the lost. Our job is to worship, encourage one another. And some of us might say, well, the church is my shelter from the storm. And those are not bad answers. And you can give scriptures that go with every single one of those things that I just said. But with all those answers, is there one that stands out possibly more than any other as what it is is our goal? How are we doing as God's group? What is it that we're supposed to be about? What is it? And that's the next question is what is it that prevents us from successfully accomplishing God's goal for us, or our God-given goal? So, uh, before we go any further, I like to tell you the answer to the problem. Uh, but sometimes we kind of, when we know the answer to the question, we know the answer to the sometimes we seek to answer it completely different than what Scripture does. Our goal, our purpose, it's kind of a complex answer, really. It's, 
I, we're going to try here in a second to just boil it down to something small. But you can't really do that. So we, we start off with that because how many books are in your Bible? There's 66 books. And we have this belief that they're all inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're all written of God, and they're all vital for our salvation. Even the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, having a proper understanding of everything. But if you try to reduce it down to just a couple verses, I think the best thing we could do is we'd go with Christ. And what did he have to say? And they turned to him and they said to him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the greatest and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now you'll find that quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the situa situation might be a little different in one than the other. But basically they say, well, of all the commandments, of everything that's in God's law, the law of Moses, what matters most? He cites a verse from Deuteronomy, and he cites a verse from Leviticus. Love God with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, at the same time, we could just close down church and go from here and say, okay, I got it, Mark, let's just, let's go and do that. But again, that's why we have 66 books, isn't it? You know, and those, in particular, those of the New Covenant, which we are, you know, the New Testament. You know, just to, to say, you know, on these two commandments is everything. You know, the, the law and the prophets. Well, that's all that was written up at that point. And then now we have the rest of the New Testament. But still, the same thing holds true. Even Paul will quote this later on and saying, this is what it's all about. To understand, though, what God's love is and how to love your neighbor, you've got to know the rest of the scriptures. That's why we read our Bible daily. It's why we come together. You know, we have people getting together six and seven times in different situations throughout you know, the community with our group here. It's why some of you sit at home in your kitchen with your family and, and read God's word. But there's another verse and there's another commandment for the church, you know, that also guides what we do as a church. And the second one, I think, that goes right along with that first one of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor is what Christ gives us as he closes out his, his ministry and as he's about ready to return to heaven. And he looks at the, the disciples, and we all know this one, it's, he says... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know that. We quote it. We might even choose to put it on a plaque somewhere and hang it on the or wall in, you know, in, the, in the foyer. We will have a foyer in a new building. Isn't that nice? But do we really understand it? Because I sometimes think even when we read those two sets of verses, the one about loving God and loving your neighbor, and then we read this one here about preaching the gospel, I think we still get a little confused. And if I open up the, you know, the room and say, what does that mean? People are going to give some good answers. Preach the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. Baptize them. We might even get somebody that will list out the five steps of salvation. In the end, sometimes though, what we do with that is we reduce faith to a list of rituals and regulations without any spirit, without any true life. But when you look at that commandment from Christ again, because he says, make disciples, what does that mean? That's the first commandment. He says, you make disciples. All that really means 
is people who follow the life of the master. That's what it means to make a disciple. We thought it meant to get them wet and to go through the right regulations, you know, hear, believe, repent, be baptized. You know, we could say them quicker than we can explain them, obviously. But to be a disciple is to follow the master. Follow the life of the master. And if you don't know Jesus, if you just know him as a name, he's just a symbol or a figurehead. Instead, you have to know the man of Galilee. And that's why I constantly come back to the Gospels as the strongest place for what we need to be as Christians. How can we be disciples of Christ if we're not familiar with the life of Christ and we do not choose to follow that life? If you don't follow the man of Galilee, you are not a disciple. I don't care what your baptismal certificate says. The next thing that we have, he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, somehow, again, we managed to reduce this to hear, believe, repent, be baptized. All that he commanded. That's quite a list, doesn't it? It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the preachings. It's the conversations at dinner. It's the talks while they walked along the ways. It's the actions. It's the works. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Observing all that Jesus did with his disciples, the apostles, and having, having an intimate knowledge of what we find in those Gospels. And for now, I want to ignore a few things, because sometimes we get fixated on the wrong thing. We're not going to talk about eschatology. Some of you, God bless you, you don't even know what that word means, and praise the Lord for that. We're not going to talk about transubstantiation, acapella singing, or predestination, or the Lord's Supper. Those things have their place in Bible classes from time to time. But what Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission is how you live your life daily. What your daily purpose is. He says, observe all that I've commanded you. You read the Gospels and you understand exactly what he's saying. He's saying, you trust God. And look at the stories through the Gospels. It talks about self-sacrifice. It talks about loving your neighbor. It talks about prayer, obedience talks about bearing fruitful labor. There's a lot in scriptures about humility. Not sure how many sermons we have on humility, but Jesus has quite a few, doesn't he? The goal of the church is to spread his word, not our favorite discussion points or our favorite debate topics. So at that point, we've come for a circle to what we asked at the beginning. What is the goal of the church? To seek and to save the lost by using all of these tools and practices that we've just talked about. We love God so much and we love our neighbor so much, you just can't help but speak about it. You just can't help but tell people. So then the next question, what is it that prevents us from successfully accomplishing our God-given goal? If we love the Lord with all of our heart and with all our mind and soul, the problem must be those people. You know, it, it must be them. It's not us in this rule, room. It's their fault. And we're studying Jeremiah in the evenings, and it's their fault, isn't it? I mean, I cannot think of a man who dedicated more time, more energy, more heart and devotion to changing souls and failed miserably. You know, as far as we can tell, he basically has Baruch, his scribe, is kind of on his side. And there's an, there's an Ethiopian eunuch, not the same one we just wrote about this morning. He's, you know centuries apart. But there's an Ethiopian eunuch, a foreigner. But the rest of it, he is an absolute failure. So sometimes we say, well, Lord, we've done everything we know to do. 
And we, they just, what the other problem is, it's them, it's not us. Well, that might have been true for Jeremiah, but I don't think we, you and I can make the same claim. You know that Jesus gives us plan B in case plan A fails? Now, there is no plan B for the gospel. There's plan A, the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. Plan A, no plan B. But when we fail, God gives us plan B. Might not have thought about that much, but it's right there in the scriptures. He tells us, because whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off of your feet. In other words, you know, there's, there's, there's a little bit of judgment in that statement, but it's also telling you as the, as the evangelist, you as the one sharing God's word, move on, keep going. And then he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So if we're not bringing in a harvest, maybe we're not looking in the right place. And then finally he says, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. In other words, plan B. If this doesn't work here, you move on to that person there. And if that person doesn't work, you move on to there. You move on to a different nation, a different city. A different class of people, perhaps. A different you know, social group, whatever it is. So what is it that keeps us from being successful in accomplishing God's word? And God's will. Well, there's a short story that I just read, read here recently in John chapter 12. And it's interesting. You know, when you get to about John chapter 6 to the end, you realize you only have about a week of Christ's life. You know, and you go Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, they, you know, they start when he's being born and take you all the way to his, his death, burial, and resurrection. John, by the time you get to chapter 6, you're in his last week of his life. And so there's a lot that Jesus says in that last week. When you get to John chapter 12 again, he's, he's staring down Calvary at this point. He knows what's just around the corner. And all of a sudden there's this little odd story here where some out-of-towners come up and they want to meet Jesus. And it says, now there's some Greeks among those who are going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and asked him, say, sir, we wish to see this Jesus. Philip's interesting. He said, Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. I don't know why Philip couldn't do it on his own, but if you, if you do look at the different stories with Andrew, he's really good at introducing people. You know, we would have had him at the back door introducing guests as they came through, I guess. That would be his, his number one goal. But then it says, Jesus hears all this, and, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Oh, I skipped a little bit. Let me go back. Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, he's in his last days. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Now when you read that, we're in you know, the final week of Christ. And everybody at this point seems to know about Jesus. Even when you get over to Acts chapter 10, when you the 
conversion of Cornelius up in Caesarea, Peter, when he opens up the discussion, says, I know you've heard about this Jesus. You know, he went around doing good. I, I love that statement Peter makes. But here are some out-of-towners, some Greeks. Now, these might be God-fearing Greeks. They're not proselytes, or they would have said proselytes. You know, ask me the difference later on. But these are people who apparently are attracted to Judaism, but not actually converts, converts to Judaism. But they've been hearing about this Jesus. Everybody's been hearing about Jesus. And these Greeks want to meet Jesus. And the Passover is just around the corner. And I'm speculating at this point, but I wonder if maybe the purpose of these men walking into the scene, or maybe it's just because it happened by coincidence and Jesus sees and he's reminded. I think this is a big reminder for Christ in his final days of the ultimate goal. Because Jesus is not just dying for the people of Jerusalem or Judea or Galilee. He's dying for a world. Jesus' ultimate goal is, is spreads way beyond the borders of Israel and way beyond the borders of that particular generation. It spreads all the way to us today. Jesus is dying for on the cross for a world present, past, and a world yet to come. And at that point, Jesus makes that statement. He says... The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it, hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's a reminder at this point about he's about to suffer the most heartbreaking painful, costly sacrifice you could ever imagine. And his, his words when he talks about, and when he talks about the grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies, he's talking about himself and what takes place there at his crucifixion. But the blessing that can only occur because of that sacrifice. But at the same time, did you notice, as he kept speaking, he brought you and me into discussion. He is that grain of wheat that falls to the earth and bears much fruit. But then he says this. He says, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. That sacrifice isn't just him on the cross. That also now includes you and me. Why do we fail at the mission? Are we not those who are willing to do whatever it is that he asks? And if you think about it as, as our outreach, haven't we tried anything we could possibly imagine? In my lifetime, I've been through bus ministries, VBS, seminars, campaigns, a sign in the lawn. Now you can even get electronic signs in the, on, in the, in the lawn. Even we have gone as far as getting out there and knocking on doors and personally inviting people to church. So the question we might ask is, haven't we tried everything? Anything you ask, Lord, we'll do it. But Jesus, he kind of raises the bar a little bit, doesn't he? He calls us to be that grain of wheat that falls to the earth. And so our reply is, anything you ask, Lord, but not that. Here's the problem. I don't think you can take and put these words together in the same sentence and come out with anything true. 
Two words that cannot exist in the same sentence are the words Lord and the word but. Yes, Lord, but. As soon as you say that, you understand what you've done? You have dethroned the Lord and you have taken up the throne for yourself. As soon as we say that. But if we are to bear much fruit, if we are to fulfill this purpose of what we are supposed to be for as a church, this is what he says. He says, we have to say, yes, Lord. You know, we're, um, clock's not going too bad on me this morning, but uh, I don't want to go too long. Uh, and I could give example of example and example after example of how we have conditional lordship in our lives. And again, that's a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as conditional lordship. Conditional lordship is really no lordship at all. I would preach and teach, but, you know, have you ever noticed that, what is it that causes so many of our young people to not choose the ministry? Could it be the salaries involved? Could it be the lack of glory involved? What is it that causes most of our preachers to stay in the affluent areas of our country? Could it not be the salaries involved? I know that billions have never heard the gospel, but that's not for me. Again, one of my horrible memories from years ago was getting ready to go to do mission work in Brazil and, and having an elder's wife want me to talk to her daughter because her daughter wanted to do mission work. And she thought I would be the perfect person to talk to her and talk her out of it. <laughs> I never quite understood the logic. I know billions will never hear the gospel, but that's just not for me. I see those desperate households and families in my own community. But I don't want to get involved. I would love to see us increase our ministry, spend more time reaching out. But, you know, my credit card's at the max. What can I do? Each one of us has our own addendums or escape clauses for our own faith. Because too often, what keeps us, what prevents us from reaching God's goal is we say, yes, Lord, but the question we asked this morning is how many of us will be that grain of wheat that is willing to fall to the earth? How many of us are willing to take a view of our faith and our purpose so powerful in God's kingdom that we choose to die? I'm not telling you you have to go get a cross and be nailed to it. I'm not telling you to imitate those people who actually literally drag around two wooden beams up and down the street. But in your choices of life, in your choices of what you need to do for God, do you side so strongly with the gospel that you die to yourself? I could make a list of unneeded ministries and needs and maybe post them on the wall somewhere. Here's the most frightening part. part. I seriously believe that over the years, the Holy Spirit has tapped you on the shoulder. He's pricked your heart. He's nudged you towards a ministry or towards a need, a service, a purpose. Maybe a purpose tailor-made for you. Because I really actually do believe that, that there are purposes for you individually. I don't know exactly what they are that I can never accomplish. 
Landon Saunders talked about a man who was quitting his job at, at a General Motors plant to be a preacher. And he says, how many people do you work with? And I forget how many thousands of people are at that factory. He says, you're going to quit that field of thousands for a small group of 50 to 100? Sometimes I think God points us in a place and you individually can do things that I have absolutely no way of ever doing. The problem is the Holy Spirit has been nudging you. He's tapped you on the shoulder. He's, he's tapped your heart and you resisted. You came up with an excuse or maybe you just chose to ignore it. At one point, guess what the Holy Spirit does? He stops. He stops tapping you on that shoulder. He stops nudging your heart. It's what Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. He says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Some people think they're talking about, you know, some miraculous gift there. No, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you that you received is it's your baptism. Who is there trying to work along with your heart but you continually resist him. Sooner or later, you'll quench him. So perhaps it's time to be a little bit honest and pray honestly for forgiveness. Pray and ask that the Spirit open up your heart one more time. Now that's not easy. So when I say those, it sounds like, you know, that I'm praying for some type of an incantation to come down and take over your soul. That's not what I'm saying. It takes time sometimes to separate your wants from God's plan. Because usually whatever I want, that's what the Holy Spirit wants, right? Surely that's what it is, right? That's uh, probably not the case. So we can go into a lot of detail on that. But I believe if you honestly pray for forgiveness, for those resistance to the Holy Spirit's nudge, it may take a little time. But I believe he will guide you if you make him Lord, if you choose to be that grain of wheat that falls to the earth. And the sentence will be just what it is there on the screen. Yes, Lord, and nothing else. You want to know what's going to make us for a powerful church for the next generation, and perhaps generations beyond the lives of anybody in this room. It's when, above and beyond all else, we say yes, Lord. This morning we offer the gospel invitation. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, but you have not surrendered your life, it's time to do that now. Not tomorrow. I can never understand the people who say they believe, but they're saying one day. Say yes now. Repent. That just means change. You're no longer in charge. He's in charge. And we will baptize you in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins in his name. If you just have been resisting the Holy Spirit for a long time, resisting God's nudgings, it's time to change that too. So whatever your need is, we actually come down as we stand and as we sing. Oh God, you are.